Welcome to the Adventures in Awareness podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Psychedelic Society. The Psychedelic Society exists to create a culture of deeper connection to ourselves, each other, the living planet, and the mystery of existence. You can check out their events at psychedelicsociety.org.uk. Today I'm really excited to have Daniel Ingram back to speak about the experience of self, the insight that there isn't one, and what this means to -to day-to-day life, historically, philosophically, and phenomenologically. Daniel is co-founder of the Practical Dharma Movement, holds an MD, MSPH in epidemiology, is an emergency medicine physician who practiced clinically and taught medicine for 12 years, and is author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And here's part one. So welcome, Daniel. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping this will be an unusually hardcore podcast, uh, as my ambition, <laughs> in, in the sense that we're diving into a topic often found uh, bewildering and often avoided, I think, even in, in some Buddhist circles that I'm aware of. Um, and I'm really hoping, I'm fascinated by it, and I'm hoping we can get a bit more clarity about what this teaching of no self is and what it isn't, what it means and what it doesn't. Um, so yeah, I'd love to start by digging into your personal experience, if that's okay, and, and your personal understanding of what this is. And then later in the discussion, maybe get your take on various debates that exist on the topic. And if there's time, perhaps some practice guidelines that might help me personally and anyone listening who's into this kind of stuff as well. Just diving into the main theme, my understanding is that uh, one of the core teachings of the Buddha or Buddhism is anatta. um, And that means that there's no enduring or separate self. Um, And that is something, an insight that can be directly realized. And of course, for many people that seems or feels incredibly counterintuitive. Could you just dive in with a summary of the concept of anatta, what, what that means and, and how you experience it? Okay, well, uh, those are two big questions. Yes. Um, <laughs> actually, do you mind if I start kind of way back at the beginning and add yeah. a historical dimension to that? Because I think it will help the story. Absolutely. So as a child, I, of course, thought I was. I was this observer thing in here. I was quite certain. Everything seemed to confirm that. It seemed very straightforward. When I looked out, I saw things. When I decided to do something, I did it. Things happened to me. This seemed entirely clear. How could it be argued? It was it seemed unassailable from many points of view. And the first real chink in the armor of this seemingly unassailable concept uh, came in the form of a book that my eighth and ninth grade science teacher, I can't remember which grade it was that he suggested I read it, um, suggested a book called The Dancing Wu-Li Masters, Wu-Li by Gary Zukov. And it was one of these books about like the new physics and how consciousness and mind and particle physics all might relate to each other. It's got its problematic sort of semi-woo-woo elements. You know, it's 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 it is from that era, and yet there's a lot of it, a lot of it that really holds up, that I think is actually very valuable and important. And one of the things that sort of points out is the causal nature of the universe. It starts. It talks about the fact that, from a sort of a Newtonian point of view, it would seem that superdeterminism. If this is a, a, a universe of laws, of biochemical, chemical, and physical laws, as in the sense of physics, and even now quantum laws, though there's some weirdness there we can try to get to, uh, then you would, it would seem that it's a clockwork universe. And this was one of the great um, affronts to the notion of free will, the notion of choice, the notion of Um, a soul, the notion of lots of things that came out of the Enlightenment era and all of that, and some of the thinkers from that era, that was a real affront to spirituality and notions of individuality and that sort of thing, and of a continuous soul and all that. And so um, the books made its arguments very well, and to me as a teenager, hit me very hard. And the notion that everything should have even been determined from the beginning, while it sort of has almost bizarrely Calvinist underpinnings of predestination, et cetera, wasn't concerned with soteriology, salvation, et cetera. It was concerned with just the fact of how things happen at all. And given how freakishly lawful everything sort of seems in its you know, sort of smaller components, 
a lot of people would extrapolate that that, of course, may apply to bigger systems, that even though it seems that will emerges somehow out of these maybe insensate you know, components from sort of a scientific materialist point of view, these unconscious, undeliberate, purely lawful causal components, yet the book itself really sort of pointed to that doesn't make any sense. Like how, what's the, the gap? And that gap has been one of the hard problems of the sense of self for scientists, you know, who the vast majority of whom have a relatively well-defined experiential sense of self versus the theories that they think. And so this belief dichotomy has been one of the, the bugaboos of science for a long time, because even most scientists, it's, it existentially sits, it's very challenging to them, right? Because, and it was very challenging to me as a teenager. And somehow I took this super seriously. You know, I had some weird, what I would later think of as meditative or spiritual experiences right around that same year or so that uh, also probably impacted the way that I appreciated what the book was talking about um, at some sort of biological level. And we can attempt to get to how problematic our attempts at figuring out what that means are. But I had seen experience as sort of particles and waves very briefly. Like I had seen the sort of wavical particle nature of even me, my sensate experience. And so I thought, wait a second, this book's on to something. And it wasn't at anything like Planck lengths or, you know, you know, bazillions of times per second, the crazy high frequencies of particle physics. It was at much more mundane human frequencies, but I had still perceived it directly for myself. And somehow these two insights came together and said, wait a second, these, these kids are not so crazy. So actually my first real deep dive into no self actually came out of science, particle physics, um, physics, et cetera. And uh, and that rankled me. I was like, wait a second, I, I cannot exist. And the more I started looking for examples of this, the more I found them. And it was it became easier and easier to justify the point of view that, wait a second, maybe things just do happen. Now, it was just nothing like a complete understanding, as I would later come to sort of get a sense of it. But it was, it was, it was like the germ of an idea that I couldn't let go of. And so I had arguments with my friends all through college about, you know, there can't be free will and that was one of my popular um, debating uh, things in my existential philosophical college debating days, <laughs> as we do. And um, so, so then that later started to combine with Buddhist practice. And when I ran into Buddhism, and it also said the universe is lawful, causal, unfolds naturally according to its own laws, is transient, is changing, is not in your control. And I said, well, that's exactly what everything I know about um, materialist physics and science says. Now, I, I don't, the, the hard problem of consciousness will sort of get to and like how in the world consciousness might emerge from insensate matter, like it, it's still as much of a problem today, I think, as it's ever been. But um, then I, I started doing Buddhist practice and they, they said, notice that your thoughts are not in your control. Notice that your stories just come and go. Notice that you can observe all of these things. And the first thing that anybody hopefully notices when they sit down on the cushion and try to follow some meditation instructions is the degree to which the universe and even the body and the mind and emotions and feelings and thoughts, weirdly enough, seem to kind of do their own thing. And yet there are these hints of control, but as anybody who's ever attempted to follow meditation instructions realizes, hopefully in the first minute, it's not nearly so straightforward as you thought it was. And so those even beginning experiences of meditation were very reinforcing of the possible validity of the concept of no self, that I could actually seem to observe thoughts come and go. And I thought thoughts were me, of course, right? We think our thoughts are us or ours or something, right? Even though we'd be so, oh, my mind is so, you know, annoying or uh, whatever, or brilliant or whatever we're thinking yeah, at the time. Yeah, this tune is stuck in my head. Or, yeah. Right, a tune is stuck in my head, right? We say things like this all the time that sort of have this sense of reference pointiness that sort of our thoughts might not really be us, they're kind of us, but, you know, and this is part of human experience. And then so that line and, and as I meditated further more and more, that line of like where the boundaries were on this no self thing sort of expanded and expanded and began to include more and more things that I realized did not seem to be in my control. And yet there was the paradox, as plenty of people have also noticed, meditation and following instructions got easier. 
So meditation, in some ways, also began to sort of reinforce something in the sense of a doer, a controller, a knower, a beer, a meditator, a, a person who could tell their mind to stay on the breath for a minute, and it largely mm -hmm. would, a person who could sit for an hour without moving, a person who could just say to that emotion, no, like, we're just not going there, or say to that story, I'm not becoming lost in you. And so meditation training did this funny thing, where it simultaneously seemed to super reinforce the sense that I was not there, and then also be reinforcing the sense that I was there, like that I was becoming an upgraded version of the there that was there in some ways. Right? So it was going in both directions kind of simultaneously, and there was going to be a breaking point at some point. So I'll kind of, I've been telling my story for a while, but what, what sort of comments do you have on that before I keep going? Um, well, many actually, I, I'm just fascinated again by uh, this distinction between the, the, the inherent paradox, I guess, of the instruction to pay attention to your mind. And one of the things that is noticed is that you're not really in control of what's happening in your mind. So I'm constantly fascinated by that. And also, I guess that there might be an intention to control thoughts or tell them to quiet down. But at the same time, at least personally, when I look for the source of that intention in itself, I can't find a source for that. So the mystery is kind of constant. And, and at a theoretical level, I'd say it seems intellectually totally unsolvable to me at least, but there's, there's probably Actually, more intelligent people than me investigating it, so. Um, for whatever strange reason, intellectually, I was 100% convinced. Like, I just was like, this has to be. It made perfect, it, it, it suited my, the same side of myself that appreciates the beauty of mathematics. Yeah. And it's, it's unassailable or seemingly unassailable yeah. you know, um, elegance. And I'll just bookmark this question, but I'm sure you're going to get to it. What what confounds me is it's uh, spoken about as an insight that one can get, and yet I feel like I get it. And I feel like lots of scientists, as you say, they kind of get, there's no locus for free will or for like some controller that's outside of the system, but they're not, they don't seem to be or claim to be Buddhas or enlightened or, you know, there's a distinction somewhere between what someone might believe and what someone's experiencing. And But I'm sure you're going to get there, so I'm happy to wait. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, hopefully have been getting there. So I, I totally agree. And this, this, um, and then I began to have some experiences that seemed to provide answers to the cracks in like the, the cracks that have been forming in the foundation, like a few things suddenly just became like gulfs that something could kind of pour through that. Um, so the first thing that ever really shook the sense that, that you know, I would have said, all of this is, um, you know, unstable and changing, obviously, but the notion that like space might be unstable itself was foreign to me. And I can tell you that I went to sleep and then there seemed to be a gap in my consciousness and I would wake up like in the morning. And so consciousness doesn't appear stable. And yet the moment to moment of it didn't really hit me until I was on this retreat and, and I saw reality shudder, collapse, totally disappear, frame cut totally reappear and i was like oh and then reality we coalesced to the same dualistic thing it had been before in most ways but i was like oh wait a second there's a there's a, a there's a something there that you can actually literally perceive the frame rate of experience like a wave of like a movie you know like a sort of, you know, I don't want to get into the, the problems of wave versus particle models of experience, but they both kind of have their validity, even when there seems to be like a, a frame, it has movement within it. And then the frames can be perceived to totally vanish in a way that seems digital. So like, you know, the, the wavical models just got more and more compelling to me as I experienced stuff that also seemed to have the sort of dual nature of analog and digital types of impermanence, both simultaneously. Um, what that has to do with particle physics, I honestly have no idea, but it's a, sort of a striking thing that you can perceive reality in both of these ways, kind of depending on how you look at it. You know, it's also like, oh, that's interesting. It's just at much lower frame rates. We're, ta we're talking 20 to 40 frames a second, which is fast, but well within the realm of human perception. And so there's that. And then as I got deeper into the path, then things really started to shift. And there was much more the sense that 
things kind of knew themselves where they were. That was one of the things that was really striking when that started to kind of come online, that this webcam right here, hello, that little thing right there, those colors, those textures, those lights and letters and all that, those are just happening actually there. So before it seemed that no, th this is really the thing that knows those. And as I got farther into this and got higher resolution, almost like Leeuwenhoek with his microscope and suddenly understanding, you know, wait a second, there's this whole world of little things in there we didn't understand before that might be doing all kinds of stuff, right? I suddenly had a better instrument. And with this better instrument, I could go, oh, wait a second, there's this back and forth oscillation. Experiences here that seem to just be there straightforwardly as they are, right? And then experiences here that were pretending to interpret them, know them, were the little mental impressions that could remember them, intentions that were arising sort of here in this kind of area of space that then led to actions there. But just as you've said, the intentions themselves seemed to rise causally. They seemed to just be these things that were being created by the same lawful process that everything else was. And these mental impressions here also just seemed to kind of know themselves where they were and would, you un would you mind unpacking ca causal or, ca or causally what you mean by yeah. that? Yeah. So by causally, I will mean lawfully. Like if I decide, oh, I'm going to put my finger to my nose and then I touch my nose, or I'm going to touch the webcam, boom, I've touched the webcam, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's this sort of anticipatory kind of planning with kind of like sense of pattern recognition of how to do something and then monitoring as the hand moves, 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 moves. There's the sense of contact. There's the recognition of the contact that then feeds back into the system, says you have touched the webcam. Now we have a plan that we've pre-put in place, it seems, or the universe did or whatever, that's gonna pull the hand back after you've touched the webcam. And then, you know, then that's sort of how that works. And yeah. So there's, we all know about this. We can say, oh, I'm going to think a thought, right? But, you know, I'm going to think a thought. I'm going to think a thought, you know? And there's that anticipatory, we kind of know what we're going to do kind of right before we do it. And we kind of have yeah. a plan like, oh, I'm going to go over there to the door and then I'm going to open it. I'm going to walk out to the breezeway and then, you know, go take up the trash or something. And we have these sort of plans that arise and the plans really seem to be us because a lot of the, the sort of mechanism, as far as I can tell, of how this works is there things can be kind of half perceived. Like you, you perceive them just enough to get a sense of what their kind of like message or purpose or seeming meaning or intent is, but not enough to really fully bring them into the realm of experience. So that if you fully brought intention into the realm of just experience, then it's just a bunch more qualities arising on what appears to be a transient three-dimensional moving morphing screen or something, or mo three-dimensional monitor or whatever, where intentions are just more qualities that arise very naturally as experienced things that you experience at a very sensate level rather than a sort of, I knew that, but I didn't really know how I knew it. I knew I was going to think a thought before I thought it. I knew I was going to finish the sentence before I finished it. You know, like, and there are these, you know, and the brain kind of has this sense of planning and monitoring of how it's all going. Like I can tell when I get to the end of the sentence, oh, and maybe it would be time to think of another one. And then, oh, there's the, and then there's all this other reference point stuff, right? So there's the images of, of you on the screen looking back at me, or seeming to, because it's a screen, that's not actually your eyes, but you know what I mean. And then hands moving around with gestures that are being come up with in some kind of way. And then all, all the sense of like, you know, how is my posture? You know, do I look good on the webcam? <laughs> you know, all these little thoughts are going back and forth and oscillating with the sense of dialogue and the sense of planning of where all these points are going to go. And hopefully then there's also this monitoring part of my brain that's leading this to some conclusion. Thank God. You know what I mean? And so this, this back and forth process, we can describe parts of it, but to perceive it in real time is something of a trick, right? Because that's pretty fast. And well, if you kind of slowed down and said, well, yeah, this part is happening, and yeah, that part is happening, and yeah, kind of this part is happening, and of course that part is happening, to get to a level of mind that's trained well enough to not only be able to, to see all that as it's happening in real time, but also to be able to, to experience each of those things at the level of just 
full experience because when they're kind of in the level of half experience, the mental impressions can really kind of, they're usually okay, you know, little mental impressions of, you know, oh, he just nodded. I can remember he nodded. I will operate on the fact that he nodded, even though now maybe he's not nodding or is or whatever, but that's a new nod and I can remember the old nod. And these little mental impressions that allow things like memory, anticipation, planning, they create this sense of linear time with a past, right? They have thoughts that arise now that have this quality of past, thoughts that arise now that have this quality of future, thought that has thoughts that have the, the quality of memory, thoughts that have the quality of planning or anticipation or expectation and or intending. And so all that is arising right here. But when you bring it to the level of experience, it just becomes kind of like leaves falling off trees you know, or apples falling to the ground, the classic Newtonian case. And you go, oh, that, app, that, that, that intention just arose. And so the, when you bring things out of the level of like kind of half experience where you could kind of talk about them, you kind of knew them, but you kind of didn't, but you, you know, whatever, they can easily create the sense of self they would seem to imply. They can easily create the sense of a, a, a knower that actually is here, that this is actually, you know, these little mental impressions happening in here are actually the knowledge of those sensations there, rather than these being sensations here and these being sensations that are remembering them and are a coarse impression of them here, or these being just intentions that just arose naturally, and these being then actions as the hand moved or the voice spoke or the eyes looked, you know, remember to look back at the webcam or whatever it is. Hey. So, um, rather than your face on the screen. And so, uh, you know, and in that kind of way, there's this back and forth process. Do, 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 do. Well, it turns out you can train your mind just like all kinds of other skills to bring all of that to the level of what I'll call full experience. And in full experience, a thought of past or future may still be able to convey its meaning, but it's literally just more stuff arising in this immediate space. And there's a way to actually do this well enough so that it kind of becomes hardwired, just like, I can't say the word be, you know, and you not have some sense of what that meaning is or elephant and a thought of an elephant just arises. Like you can't not do that. It's, it becomes fixed just like reading or yeah. like there, you can't, un, you can't not know the meanings of words you read that, you know, unless you, they're super fast flashed on a screen and you can't catch them or whatever. It but if you read a word. Incomprehensible lines. Yeah. Yeah, right. You're yeah. going to know its meaning. And in that kind of way, this be just becomes one more thing you know at your baseline. It becomes hardwired you, because you've done the work to bring those things up to a perceptual level. It's kind of like when I first in medicine started listening to heart and lung sounds, as if any of you have been to medical school or nursing school or like, you know, a, a, um, advanced practice uh, school, one of these types of things, and you start listening to lungs and hearts you don't, you, you're like, it's weirdly confusing. You're hearing something, but you can't really hear it. It's the oddest thing. And, you know, we, your upper level resident or whatever is like, can't you hear that murmur and that gallop and that crackle and that whatever it is. And you're like, I don't know, I hear something, but I don't know that it's that. And then after you've done it a few thousand times, you put your stethoscope on and those things just show themselves to you. The mind knows them. It's, it, it becomes harder and harder to, to miss stuff because the brain just, oh yeah, that, oh yeah. It, it, there's a recognition that becomes automatic through repetition and practice. And in the same way, if we practice noticing intentions just arise on their own and we just watch that, there's an, oh, I'm gonna watch an intention arise on its own. Oh, that was an intention, wasn't it? Oh, that was a recognition. Oh, that was a, oh yeah, okay, that's a, ah, okay. And then when you do that a whole lot of times, just through kind of some wiring, that again, we do not understand very well, as we'll get to, you can bring these things at the level of conscious experience. And when they're in conscious experience, the relation to them is extremely different. And this causal nature, this immediate nature, this transient nature, this insubstantial and yet very clear nature becomes just much more obvious. And so if you're interested in kind of more on this, there's actually a fun, um, site called Spirituality Explained, sorry, by Frank Hiley. And Spirituality Explained kind of talks about some possible neurobiologically mechanisms based on some neurobiological theories of how it is we kind of shift from kind of half experiencing things to really much more completely experiencing things just as sensate input. Not that they might not also have meanings and stuff, meanings it turns out in some strange way are also kind of sensate output, but that's getting to very gray areas when it comes to 
um, perception. And maybe it's worth just uh, clarifying a couple of terms. Um, sensate input, let me just say what I think it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically experience at the level of senses, like raw sense experience of, of feeling something, hearing something, seeing something, or, or does it mean something more than that? Yes, except that, as I know from a recent Twitter exchange with a, a friend, um, the, the word raw is going to really throw some people. So I'm going to add uh -huh. some super important qualifiers. Okay. Our sensate information as it comes to us is already highly pre-processed as endless experiments of perception and the way you can trick um, senses to experience one thing or another thing already highly pre-processed the you know if, if you're talking about a meat brain the meat brain already seems to do a whole lot of work to to make things coherent to it, there's clearly some top-down stuff about expectation and what it expects and how that modifies what we experience and and how it's processed um and and um there's error checking, there's all this weird stuff and there's correction and like we can look at something one way and then we look at it a totally different way and it, it was the same thing and yet our brain is doing something experientially extremely different to it. Uh, and so um, uh, when I say raw sense data, what I mean is the rawest level we have access to, which is probably not at all that raw. Right. Um, I guess you could distinguish between I guess that assumes that there's an objective, real thing that I could be experiencing, and there's a divide between that. Interestingly yeah, enough, I heard from someone- does, We have a lot of things from which you can extrapolate that kind of point of view. Let's just yeah. say, I'm gonna be ontologically agnostic here, but sure. say I totally understand the near, seemingly nearly countless arguments for why that would be one view that would explain something in what you've just said. Yeah. So I guess we could define, or we could hone in on when I'm saying raw, I don't mean raw in terms of what might objectively or not be out there, but my direct experience of what I'm experiencing. Um, right. Interestingly enough though, and I just check maybe, cause you might know this uh, being a doctor, I don't know if it's part of medical training. I heard that uh, the sense of smell is the only sense that isn't mediated by a bunch of top down and bottom up. And it, you kind of, the sense of smell just goes directly to an air in the brain. And then I'm experiencing that smell. It isn't influenced as much by memory and anticipation. That's so, kind of a tangent, so, but I'm just curious if that's true or not. Um, yes and no. So it is true that smell is one of these very, very old sense modalities that just goes straight into some super old areas of our brain, um, you know, very close to things related to memory, um, amygdala, um, feelings, um, uh, yeah, and so extremely evocative, although smell is sort of a funny thing in that you can get habituated to smells. They can become modified in how we perceive them. I'll, I remember a striking example. So in sixth grade, uh, as sort of an odd little field trip, we went to a working farm. And on this working farm, they had a very large barn full of hogs next to which was a similarly very large pool of hog waste, the smell of which for me was like overpoweringly, like eye-wateringly horrible. And I said to the farmer who was next to me, how in the world do you tolerate this day to day and live anywhere near this? And he says, it just smells like sort of like honey and leaves to me at this point. He said, I don't smell it. It's a bad smell. I don't really notice it much. It smells a little bit sweet and a little bit like leaves or something. And I was like, mm. wow. So the brain can adapt, accommodate, modify, reframe. There are these things that it, it can do. And also, um, because meaning is one of these things that is kind of in very related to experience. I was talking about meaning again, like, you know, you can remember smells that after you, that you've had an association with them, you can never like really smell them the same way again. I have examples from my own life of certain perfumes, for example, mm -hmm. like I, I literally just can't smell them and not bring back memories and interpretations of certain events that just were not there before, right? And so those things kind of seem to almost co-arise in some modified way that clearly changed, um, was, was not one way, and you know, then it became that way. So even smell itself uh, is one of these things that um, 
yeah, can become adapted. And then there are other mm-hmm. weird things that seem almost biochemical in, in smell, like um, violets. So the you can smell violets for really full on, for, I think it's for only a few seconds or something. And the brain very rapid, or the chemistry of the something, I don't know if it's the receptors of the brain, you you lose a lot of the ability to smell that smell. Um, it's just the brain something does some weird like, thing. That's enough of that. sure. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, like the brain says, that's enough of that smell. We're moving on. Mm-hmm. So let me just see if I've understood the you you train your mind, you train your faculties to be able to perceive how um, your inter, how sense data is coming at you and is being known where it is, and the illusion of it being known somewhere else, somehow in your brain is perceived to be happening in its moment, and you do that enough to the extent that it's as natural as me reading. I can just, I look at a word of English or even these words that I'm saying now, I just, under, I can't not understand them anymore. Right. Is this close to what your, your experiences or what you're explaining? Yeah, but it was also, it wasn't linear at all. There were these switches. And a story I've told before, which doesn't seem related until all of a sudden it is, uh, this guy, Dr. Dan Denzel, who was the chair of my emergency medicine residency program and one of the smarter people I think I've met uh, in my life, and I've met some pretty smart people, he was talking about a speed reading course that he took in college. And he said they had them to sort of run their finger down the middle of the page and look down the page and then try to say something meaningful about what was on the page. And um, while there are debates about the efficacy of speed reading, I actually know that he could do it because he said we, he wanted to review our contracts before we signed up for moonlighting um, in our residency for went work at little outlying ERs. And he said, yeah, bring me your contact contract with this group and I'll review it. And I brought him the contract and it was like 14 pages or something of super small, like nine or 10 point font, single spaced on long legal pages, extremely dense legalese. And he just went zoop, 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 zoop through the document and then he said, okay, this page there's here, you can't have that, we've got to cross this out. This next page, he flipped two pages, you know, this here, this, this is totally unacceptable, this is okay, but I would really renegotiate it to this, and then blah, blah, blah. And he just, he literally in, you know, 14 seconds had read a document that it took me like over two hours to read and really understand. And he not only could, um, had read it and remember, you know, but he could remember it and even comment intelligently on various parts. But he said the way he learned to do this, he said he would run his finger down the page and nothing, run his finger down the page and maybe a few impressions, run his finger down the page and nothing. And he said he did this hundreds of times. And then one day he ran his finger down the page and he knew what was on it. Wow. Just like in a flash. It's amazing. And I was like, and clearly this guy's got an unusual brain, right? So he's, like he was, you know, got some serious horsepower and I'm not saying everyone will get that effect, but that's how it was kind of like for me in some of these shifts that were that dramatic, where it was like, whoa, I, I was one way. And then literally a few seconds later, I was another way. And it was tons and tons and tons and tons of practice that would give me hints and pieces and parts of the puzzle. But then, foof, there would be these quantum leaps Again, not to use the word quantum too much to annoy the people who. And with your noise, with your doctor friend, was that it? Just never went back. So one day he could do it, and right? Like the next yep. day, couldn't do it. It just one day he could do it. Wow. Right. And so this is kind of like that, or like magic eye pictures. Fear, you know, they look like sort of crazy digital distortion or some weird abstract pattern, and you kind of try to cross your eyes and try to cross your eyes. And the first time you ever do it, like you're like, how in the world do you do this? How do you do this? How do you do this? And then all of a sudden there's the sailboat or the dolphin or whatever. And you're like, oh, and then the brain's like, ah. And then like the second time is vastly easier, even if it still is a little bit of a trick, but it's doing that first time that it has to flip over to some new level or way or order of understanding in some ways. And this is that. So if you mm-hmm. find this frustrating or challenging, I did too <laughs> for yeah. years and years and years yeah. and layers and layers and layers. And then there's layers of this, it turns out, or at least it's been the experience of me and lots of my friends. So I would kind of lear- learn it for one layer of mind or experience or whatever. And then some new layer would seem to show up, which looked just exactly like this. And then I would have to kind of learn it again. 
And then, but the layers were also not infinite. It wasn't an infinite series. And eventually there's no more layers that seem to perceive things the one way with being a real past, a real future, a real doer, a real knower, controller, stable thing. And the other way of, of course, this is all just transient stuff. How in the world could the brain have constructed the illusion out of this immediate transience that there was a real past, a real future, a real doer, knower, controller, beer? From, so from the point of view, on after you've flipped over, it seems absurd. Like, yeah. it seems pr amazing that that illusion ever held. It's like, what, really? Well, I, I certainly, I don't feel like I'm having a permanent ongoing state of what you're describing but I've touched it and thought about it enough to be, I have a sense of there being a future and a past now, but I'm equally amazed. I don't know how I'm doing that. How That seems more miraculous to me. It really feels like I'm saying these words and I'm intending them and that there is a future. And I know that doesn't make any sense logically and I'm equally fascinated. How How is it that this thought has a sense of being in the future? What about it is distinct that can create that illusion. That seems equally mysterious to me now. I don't know if you have any insight or anyone has any insight into how that's happening, but, and it's probably not that useful, but, or maybe it is just to be able to distinguish, oh, well, this is how the illusion is constructed. Yeah, actually somewhere along the way, um, I can't remember if it's in medical school, somewhere I took a very brief course on neuro-linguistic programming and it may have been related to, yeah, I think it was somewhere in medical school, somehow that they were talking about this. And it was related to like, how do you experience your sense of yourself? It was oddly kind of almost insight related. How, where, when you imagine like a calendar event in the past versus a calendar event in the future, where do you do that? And I actually like, I was like, wow, my, I imagine my calendar events kind of over there, kind of like slightly off my left side. And when they're in the past and the future is clearly kind of over there. And then they were like, how do you manage, sorry, imagine a year? How do you imagine like, you know, going from December to January to February and actually realized that I was kind of visualizing this sort of weird loop in my brain, which is like December's kind of down here and then it comes, kind of comes up to January and then here's kind of February and then you're kind of cruising along through summer and then it kind of dips back down to fall and then here's December. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. I had this weird sort of loop in my head of how I kind of imagined the months relating to each other. And that like, but everybody does this, they're going to do it, you're going to do it in your own way. But there may be some similar themes of the fact that you have these images that you just kind of, that's your shorthand for how months and days and years and weeks and stuff connect, or like, how does Sunday connect to Monday? How do, you know, so, uh, and so in the same way that in a painting, we, re we represent distance, or in fact, in our perceptual apparatus, I represent distance by something being smaller, like my hand when it's further away from me, just looks smaller. Uh, you're saying, or NLP would be saying, the sense of something being in the future, maybe for one person, it's a smaller image, or it's hazier, or it's in front yeah. of me as opposed to behind me. It's being constructed through this concept of space. Uh, and it's almost kinesthetic, maybe, this kind of sense of being close or far or, or released or... Is yeah. this close to what you're saying? That's exactly it. Right. And it turns out that you can actually bring awareness to those sensate experiences, which initially are kind of baffling or confusing or, or so familiar that you've forgotten your own shorthand, that you made a shorthand and now use it uh, and to, to operate on the world. And then you kind of, you know, kind of glitch out that middle part because you don't really care. It works, you know, like a, like a black box that does what you want it to do. You know, you don't really care what the mechanism is, like how exactly does your phone work? You know, I don't, you know, I have some ideas, but I don't know exactly how all the little parts work. And yet the phone does what I want it to do. Yeah. But it turns out you can actually kind of start to take apart some of the mechanism and go, well, how, wait a second, how is past and future constructed? What are the images of myself that come up when I think the thought I? What are the images of, you know, I versus other? Like, what does the brain do exactly in that moment? How does attention change and shift? Like there, oh, other is here and I is kind of here. Well, what are these sensations here? What are those rapidly little uh, cascading things that make up the nucleus of the thought I? Um, and in case anybody's getting this weird idea that some people get, I'm not saying stop thinking the thought I or anything like that. I'm saying experience clearly the numerous little wiggly immediate transient causal sensations that make up thoughts like self or other. Because when you actually bring them up a notch in terms of their sort of brightness, clarity, something, and you can do this just through practice, it turns out, 
uh, just like listening to heart sounds or lung sounds or um, ear training in music. So when I started listening to music, I, I couldn't hear a fifth, for example, but now I can go, you know, bum, bum, bum. You know, that was a fifth and then a fourth, right? Oh, um, thank you, music people. So uh, you can tell it's early in the morning for me or it feels like it. So like, I can now hear intervals. I can hear, you know, um, different like chords in music. I can hear a major chord versus a minor chord and go, that's a major chord, that's a minor chord. Whereas before I started doing ear training, those things were kind of baffling to me or, oh, maybe that's a major seventh or a minor seventh, you know, these kind of finer distinctions or, uh, you know, a dominant seventh chord or something. And again, those were initially baffling until I really started listening and going, oh, okay, that's what that is. Oh, wait, maybe that's a diminished chord. Maybe they've got a you know, and, and then as my ear has sort of progressed, I get better and better at hearing weird harmonies. And that's just something I trained to do. In the same kind of way, you can train yourself to be able to um, hear uh, this is, uh, you know, um, this is uh, an intention. This is the sound of a thought. This is the, the sight of a thought. Like when I imagine, you know, when I look at you and then close my eyes and imagine Oh, there's the screen, there's kind of the computer, there's the microphone, there's the webcam, you know, this is my hand moving around. I have this sense kind of shadowy flickery of what all these things look like, even with my eyes closed and kind of where they are. I could close my eyes and reach out and tap my computer monitor and I, I get it basically right, you know, because my brain has this map and it's doing that based on comparing sort of the proprioceptive data of my hand, which also has a kind of an imagey component that it's lacing over it, even though there's no, in theory, visual data coming from my fingertips. It kind of, you know, has this picture of my hand touching the monitor. And then, you know, this is going back and forth really quickly. Well, it turns out you can bring up the level of experiencing those little subtle thoughts of proprioception, of planning, of the images, you can bring them up in sensate awareness just through practice, such that all of a sudden they become clear. And once they become clear, they do this, if you get it clear enough and do it for enough of it, it'll flip over and you'll be like, oh, ah, these are just experiences transiently, causally happening, happening now. All the, all the thoughts, all the intentions, all the stuff. Mm -hmm. And it just turns out, why would you do this? That it just feels a lot better. Even if you don't like any of the ontological implications or you don't like the spiritual implications, it just feels better. Like it's clearer. I, I seem to function better. Like uh, my mind is more well-behaved. There's uh, emotions seem somewhat more well-behaved. Uh, there are shades of gray in this. I'm not like promising, you know, uh, perfection or anything like that. But like, it's, you know, from my point of view, I'm like, well, this is an upgrade. Of course I would take this. I, I wouldn't go back. Um, you know, so, uh, so I would recommend it, even if you don't like any of its ontological assumptions and you're just purely like, well, is it better? Well, yeah, I think so. Although there can be some rough spots along the way. So it's important to, to know that there are parts of us that do not like this process a lot of the time. Very few people really take to total agencylessness total transients, existentially, almost like an internal family systems kind of thing, where we have intellectual parts of our brain that are like, bring it on, of course, agencylessness, my understanding will be in conformity with, you know, science and physics and stuff, cool, right? And it's like, yes, you know, awesome. And then there are parts of us like, well, this is kind of groovy, I don't know, but it's kind of weird. And like, what if I lose control? And then like, you know, if I'm not in control, will I be able to be a good person? Or will I make, you know, not be monitoring myself? Or will I lose some functionality? And then there are parts of ourselves that are like, like no friggin' way. Like, and they just emotionally resist and they go, no way, dude. Like, no, like, ah, not, not cool. And yeah. so sometimes when we get to some of those layers, there can be this almost like childlike panic or resistance that we have to stay a separate self, like the existential freak out, whoa, nah. And so um, a lot of the meditative path is actually, you know, the challenging aspects of it, from my point of view, seem to be dealing with these sides of ourselves. You know, this, again, you know, I don't have great biochemical, you know, neurological data to support this, but the experience of it, me and countless people I've talked to about this, is that some parts of us are, really don't seem to like this, even intellectually as much as we might think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the IFS. Um, I'll just unpack that quickly. So it's internal family systems therapy, and it's a, a system that 
conceptualizes our psyche as subdivided into almost smaller personalities. And some of them are, might feel younger, you know, this kind of talk of inner child, they might be carrying wounding from earlier in life. Um, and generally my understanding of that system is that if a part is feeling scared or upset or hurt or worried, there's a more uh, central, compassionate, timeless aspect to ourselves, which they call self, ironically enough, that can take, <laughs> that can take can take care of can take care of them can reparent them. Uh, it's it's really I'm really glad you brought this up because it was it's been a very recent experience of mine where I'll look for because um, uh, yeah my intellectual parts you could say are, are transfixed and enthralled by all of this um, and I investigated a lot and I look for the center I look for the self I mull over what this means and sometimes when I don't find it there's a moment of like oh there's nothing there and then what feels like uh, quite a young, vulnerable, scared energy sense, you could call it part of myself, sometimes accompanied by a voice of like, what will happen to me? Or what do you mean I don't exist? And at that juncture, so I've kind of skipped ahead to kind of, in a way, practice advice. At that juncture, I'm like, well, where's the self-compassion? Is it to kind of squash that thing because it doesn't really exist? And, you know, what is it anyway? And it's just a figment of my imagination. Or do I try and comfort that part at some level or pay attention to it or ignore it. I don't know. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? So I think there's lots to be said for if something is freaking out and panicking comfort, right? So meditation can be existentially traumatic, period. Like, I'm sorry, people who think meditation is all good and you just do this and you'll just get wiser and kinder and more clear. Uh, that's not been the experience of myself or any of my friends. Maybe such people exist. I just don't know them. And I've talked to a lot of people about this stuff over decades. Um, but some sort of comforting, some sort of reassuring, I've come to the conclusion works generally better than just sort of crushing, destroying, obliterating, um, taking apart, deconstructing uh, those kinds of approaches. I just can't remember them really working out all that well, although those are strategies that some people will use with some moderate degree of efficacy. There's usually some price to be paid later. And so um, there's a way to gently, calmly, A, reassure, and B, uh, sort of just kind of bring into awareness so in some more gradual way so that things can dissolve. I should add an important qualifier here. Um, so. If you have a trauma history or you have other parts of your psyche that you think might really be uncomfortable with this kind of stuff, there are more sensitive, delicate, gentle approaches you will find in books such as Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness or, um, yeah, books like that, or A Path with Heart by Jack Kornfield. Uh, so advocacy for these um, people who are trying to bring a sort of a balanced perspective to the path that all, that acknowledges the potential for deep practice and also the potential for some of the healing that may, may need to take place along the way. And so um, because not everybody is in a place where deconstructing the sense of agency or center point or whatever is going to go well, uh, that's just a fact, right? So sometimes those voices in us can be super strong and just trying to ignore them or crush them or, oh, I must be a this who can do that. It's just not realistic or helpful or functional. And so just that's my kind of words of caution about this stuff. There's whole other lectures we could talk about. And then there's there's problems of like depersonalization, derealization, dissociation, which are sort of in some ways kind of the the dark side of the, the no self coin and reactions our brains and hearts and minds can have to um, experiences of existential crisis, the sense of disruption of ourselves, where, um, and these can even be mistaken for insights, as the good Dr. Willoughby Britton um, points out in some talks you can find over at Cheetah House. So go to Cheetah House online. And um, so there are ways we can kind of do the kind of pathological version of no self where we just kind of dissociate from our bodies and seem to be observing everything, but in this kind of like mentally kind of almost impaired yet very hopefully protective kind of way from traumatic experiences. And some people just kind of learn to do that. You know, they may have learned to do that in their childhood from a bunch of really traumatic experiences or something. And then later on, they may just kind of do it much more easily because that pathway got worn in you know the face of challenge or whatever. And so one has to be kind of careful to not just assume that every experience of objectivity or distance or dissociation is necessarily really helpful or, or skillful. 
and some of them can probably not be. Now, exactly where these shades of gray are between, you know, some of the dissociative seeming, you know, experiences that can seem very similar that can arise from deep meditative or other psychedelic practices or whatever other situations that can seem very sort of diffuse, spacious, transcendent, right? Because some of the insights we get into, like stages like equanimity, can feel extremely diffuse, like sort of, yeah, ephemeral, like gossamer, thin, like not really anywhere kind of states. And sort of distinguishing these can can re require some nuance and sense of sequence and some other phenomenology. And um, so just, just sort of to throw those qualifiers out there, people who are like, no, don't tell everybody to deconstruct themselves. I'm definitely not telling everybody to deconstruct themselves. This doesn't, this is not always the right plan. And so um, anyway, so just kind of throwing that out there. Thoughts? Um just that I had been sent a summary of uh, some of the recommendations. I can't remember who she was interviewing, Willoughby Britain. She was interviewing um, someone. And, and my understanding of the summary was if, if during meditation, uh, thoughts of lack of self-worth are arising, then you switch to maybe a compassion or meta or this kind of thing. If, if old trauma is coming up, you might ease off the ease off the practice and include seeking therapy. And again, switch to meta or another thing that, feels better. But the caveat in all that was if uh, feelings of existential dread are arising, that's probably a good sign. You're on the right path. Keep going. So you're, it's interesting to hear that you're distinguishing here a little bit of, of, and I've heard many spiritual teachers say, look, during a transition in this perception, there'll be a continuum from discomfort to absolute terror. And that's just part of the deal. So you're, yeah, again, so I'm a little bit like how, are there any broad guidelines one can give would it be, for example, if it feels like a very small young part, it, it requires a bit more compassion. If it's more just like a bombastic, well, I, you know, but I need to be the most significant person alive type. Thing. It's like, <laughs> maybe I can ignore that, that part of me for now. It's like, you know, any broad guidelines you can offer on this? Um, wow. This, so this is an area where the science desperately needs to be done. I would so prefer to be standing on much more data-driven ground at this point but we have almost um, no science on this kind of stuff, exactly what criteria you know, would be safe to plunge on and what criteria you should definitely seek help and what criteria say you're somewhere in the middle ground, just kind of you know, make your best guess and good luck, <laughs> right? So we, we don't know how to draw those as fine lines. So I have a weird quirk and I'm not sure where I learned this. It turns out meditative terror, um, I have ex experienced some profound moments of what I think most people would think of as meditative terror on the cushion. And the vast majority of the time to me, it just felt like that delightful feeling you might get at like the best end of a horror film, like why people go to horror films and why these movies can make hundreds of millions of dollars and people I have want to admit to that's kind of always be... confused me. It's oh, right. roller coasters, horror films, the whole thing. I'm like, what? why is anyone consciously putting themselves through terror? But, but they do. You're right. It is a phenomenon. It happens. Right. And so, like, I've jumped out of perfectly good airplanes. You know, I have done high adventure <laughs> rappelling and jumped off cliffs with ropes attached to me and swung under cliffs and wild stuff like that. I was an ER doctor. We tend to be adrenaline junkies. We have this weird relationship to fear and excitement and stuff. Right? And so... I just kind of was given this as like a personality type. I, I don't know where it came from, really. I could try to speculate, but it would probably just be the worst of pop psychological retrofitted um, junk. So, uh, but, um, and so I think I was kind of lucky because when fear would arise in practice, I was like, well, that's creepy as heck to have this horrible, chilling, tingling, weird heart racing thing in my body dissolving through the floor and weird visions of skulls or whatever. Um, and yet there was some part of me that's like, wow, cool check that out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah, man, or whatever. So that's terrible. But that doesn't always work out for people. Like this stuff can be traumatic and um, other things can be traumatizing for people as well. The sense of deep grieving and loss or the sense of like, you know, a paralytic um, depression or the sense of real paranoia, like, ooh, maybe they're talking about me. They're out to get me. I don't know if this place is safe. Uh, you know, these kinds of thoughts can, can give serious trouble to meditators and other spirit types of spiritual practitioners. As anybody who's ever had a bad trip, back to the psychedelic thing, sorry, knows, right? You, if you've had a real bad trip, you know how, how wrong this can go. 
And here get, we come to the great debate in this stuff. And the great debate, as the good Dr. Willoughby Britton will rightly point out, is that we don't really know what is um, totally unnecessary, meaning you didn't have to go through that fear and it was just some artifact of bad technique or you know zealous effort or pushing through trauma you really needed to heal or whatever it is. And what is you totally needed to face that, you absolutely needed to construct that. The only way you were going to get through the spiritual path was to do that, and that was exactly the right thing to do. And then the gray zone in between, right? And the problem is most of it's kind of shades of gray, and we don't have any firm fixed ideas of how to sort out the middle ground. And so unfortunately, I would love to be able to say, I know exactly when you should push forward forth and when you should you know, go seek help. I, I, don't in the middle. Now at the extremes, I think I kind of do, right? So at the extremes of the, the ER doctor part of me can do the easier end of this pretty well. If you're a danger to self or others, or you're psychotic to the point of being severely dysfunctional, um, or the things that are severely impairing love and work, you need help of some kind. Now, we could also, we don't have any great data on if that's going to be meds, if that's going to be therapy, if that's going to be, you know, some shamanic process, if that's going to be, you know, exercise, if that's going to be watching funny cat videos on YouTube, I don't know, like something, but something different. You, you probably need to do, you need to be doing something different. And the more extreme you are towards that end of potential self-harm or harm to others or a serious dysfunction, probably the more extreme thing you need to do. And like, and um, yeah. th that's just, you know, I could be wrong, but that's my general impression. And then out here, if you're like, oh man, like, yeah, my body's falling in rags to the floor and I've got all these crazy thoughts in my mind, but it's just like so much fun to deconstruct them and I can see all these little parts of them. And it's so cool that I'm like getting to see like this deep dive tour of my whole psyche. And wow, I've totally got this. Like, and then you get up off the cushion and you're like, hey, let's go get some lunch, you know, or whatever. Like, that's obviously fine, I think. And then it's the weird middle ground where it's harder to tell because I've had some experiences um, which definitely kind of persisted off the cushion, colored my mood for days or weeks or months or possibly years to some degree, may have caused some relationship disruption, you know, may have caused me to quit jobs or, you know, uh, educational programs or, you know, break up with girlfriends or whatever it was. And so that's causing some level of dysfunction. And yet, it then this retrospectoscope, which may be hyper, we can rationalize our trips with you know astounding um, skill uh, and um, what's the word? Perhaps self delusion. Who knows? But as I la look back across the arc of my life and all these weird decisions that ended up leading me to like meditation retreats and to study with these people and to quit jobs that allow or you know programs that allowed me to go do something else and find this person and then get connected with this and finally end up here, I go, well, actually. I'm really happy all that happened. And so there's then there's that's one of the other big debates is how in the world do you know if, you know, five, 10, 20 years later, you're going to look back at the shit show and go, God, I'm so glad I went through that shit show versus no, that just fucked my life up. And what a train wreck catastrophe disaster. Like, no, that didn't have to happen. And then that's what all of us who are in this business are trying to sort out how we try to make it better for those who come after us. I mean, like, you know, you look at the countless meditative and spiritual traditions that hopefully were mostly not about, you know, some new guru being the best guru ever, but instead we're about trying to modify the path to make it more skillful for people or add tech that previous, you know, generations didn't know about or, you know, bring in synthesize ideas that will help smooth you know, lubricate the bearings on the wheels or whatever and smooth the bumps in the road. Um, you know, we're all trying to figure this out. And so, and, you know, currently I have this project that is obsessed with the science of how you do this, uh, you know, because I think while there are serious problems that can come from bringing sort of biostatistical, you know, meat is consciousness paradigms to the realm of spirituality, I don't think that, uh, all of those problems are insurmountable. And I don't think that it's been anything like exhausted in terms of what it can actually lend to some data-driven management and optimal strategies for cultivating wisdom, kindness, and doing this in as hopefully as atraumatic way as, as functionally possible, right? So anyway, I've been talking for a while. No, no, this, is, this is all great. And uh, I guess it might contextualize the rest of what you say with this with this broader question, which is, do you sense in yourself because uh, I've heard you say at some points you're a pragmatist, that 
if, for example, some of the way you're perceiving reality now could be, and this is very hypothetical, could, could be shown to be a bit more illusory than another way of perceiving the world, would you still be like, well, this feels better and I, I enjoy life more and I'm nicer to people, so I'm going to stick with it? Or is there a drive to like, to, to truth, however, however we might hope to define that, or you might be someone who doesn't believe that such a thing exists, but, um, but, but is there a drive towards, you know, like a scientist might be like, I don't care if this wrecks my marriage, and I don't care if, you know, I don't live as long, I'm going to like drink as much coffee as I need to, and I just want to find the truth behind whatever this phenomena is that's a large continuum but do you do you recognize what you sit on there at any level um just as lewin hoke and his microscope felt like truth and seemed to continue to hold up as some sort of truth when we had some insight into the microbial world and this has that same feel to it so as a first qualifier it would be super hard to imagine that the degree of sensate clarity that just clarified so many things that were kind of semi-mysterious to me and now are just straightforwardly not. Um, for better or for worse, it has the sense, the felt sense of more truth rather than less. Now, I totally understand the traps, the sort of truth traps of dead ends and alleyways and blind passages that can seem to, because the sense of self felt super true in a lot of ways before <laughs> had that, of course, self, of course, past, of course, real future, of course, you know, I'm in control, <laughs> right? So I get having been there before and then come to the, the conclusion that I was thoroughly deluded, um, I, I get the problem, right? And so, you know, the illusion of self, I think, is a cautionary tale, and then maybe this is a cautionary tale as well. But yet, as a pragmatist, this is just so strikingly better, more clear, more functional, and it's vastly more fitting with the data. So now, from this point of view, kind of as a scientist, I'm like, what fits the data better? Well, this seems to fit the data substantially better. So as as a proper scientist that's kind of ontologically agnostic to the degree that it's possible to be with the psychologically overwhelming sense of clear just, truth. Just because ontology is a word that I struggled yeah. with until very recently. Could you just unpack that quickly? Ontology, yeah, ontology the sense of what truly is, what uh -huh. truly is, what is the underlying verify or you know, reality, right? Mm -hmm. That question. Is this all a matrix? Is this all the dream of, these are famous examples if you heard my previous work. Is this all a dream of Vishnu? Is this all... Um, you know, some emergent process from insensate, pure mathematics, seemingly based matter and physics, is this what? Well, as a Bayesian, um, I have even whatever priors I assigned to each of those possible ontologies, this is all just mind of, you know, some um, Christian God or Abrahamic God, Jewish God, you know, whatever, I don't know. So I could... Um, add data, maybe, to try to prove one of those ontologies, do studies, but I have no idea what those studies are, right? I have no idea what data moves the priors to mm. hopefully something closer to truth. And so, unfortunately, I think we still fail in the face of the ontological problem. And it turns out I didn't need to have a perfect functional working ontology to do this curious perceptual trick that substantially upgraded my life and seemed to be vastly in accord with everything I knew about science, um, or vastly more in accord with it. Like now the universe literally does experientially seem causal and lawful. It literally seems that the sense of effort just arises naturally. Even the sense of will, all of the little sensations, uh, sensations that seem to imply a stable Daniel that is actually coherent in time, those are still um, very functional and in some, in some ways even more so because there's more clarity about them. But experientially, it's super clear. They're just transient stuff happening now. Like, really, there's a real past that you actually existed in in some stable way? Really? Like, really, there's a true future rather than just sort of mental impressions that give the sense of a future? Mm. And all of a sudden, tons of things that were super problematic from my point of view and understanding things about science or mathematics or physics just weren't. Like, I have no problem with super determinism. It doesn't seem to violate anything I experience. I don't know that it's true, but it wouldn't be a problem. It doesn't contradict any of this anymore in the way that it seemed to use, you know, to be before. 
Um, uh, I'm also weirdly more comfortable with a lot of kind of scientific materialist models, which is kind of weird because the scientific materialist models actually say this is all a simulation in a meat brain somewhere. Okay, wait a second. This is curious. In the seeing, just the seen, in the hearing, just the heard, in the thinking, just the thought, these sensations, all of which I thought were actually the true meat brain, well, science would say, no, none of these are the true meat brain. If it's got colors and textures and things like that, those are not true. The true things are, you know, quantized packets of energy of a photon. Blue is not true. It's, you know, blue is a representation in a meat brain somewhere. Well, I don't know that there's actually a meat brain somewhere, but I, I could understand all of the data that would seem to point to one, right? And then how in the world it produces consciousness, we still don't know as much as people claim to. Um, and so I'm not saying that, again, meat brain scientific materialism is true, but it seems vastly less contradictory with my experience, just as um, mind-only explanations are vastly less contradictory with my experience as well which is a curious thing. So now, whereas before those seemed utterly diametrical, both of those seem perfectly fine and, and reasonable from an experiential point of view now as lenses through which you could maybe solve specific problems that they were more suited for. But now they don't seem to have anything like the conflictiness that they did before, which is also really cool. Mm, that is cool. Thanks for listening to part one of this conversation. If you enjoyed that, then do tune in for parts two and maybe even parts three, um, where Daniel's going to discuss the personal phenomenology of perceiving no self in relation to things like self-narrative thought and anxiety and the feeling of I. Uh, there are quite a few surprising um, observations that he makes in those areas, which I think you'll enjoy. And he compares uh, the different methods, Theravada, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, um, as well as his current perception of death and provides a few different practice guidelines for anyone doing self-inquiry or meditations that are looking at the sense of self. So I hope you can join us then.